We'll uh, watch these in time to come, and we certainly appreciate, again, in particular, appreciate Brother Webster as he has helped us out so much, making sure things technologically uh, accurate and helpful and get us a wide dissemination. We do want to remind you again, you can pick up a copy of the the digest outside, and uh, if you need to pay for it electronically, you can just go to fwbtheology.com, just click on the the Symposium Digest there and just choose the pickup. There's an option there and uh, you can pay uh, you pay electronically or you can uh, download it digitally as well if you'd like to get a PDF uh, copy. And so we've got those available for you and Lord willing we'll have all these sessions uh, archived so you can uh, view them later or share them. If you're not following us online, whether on social media, Twitter, Again, which that's one thing the Theological Commission has that President Trump does not, a Twitter account. And uh, so, uh, <clears throat> just trying to get a little blood flowing here in the evening. And uh, so, uh, we've got the, and then uh, online, uh, a pretty active Facebook page, and, uh, and then the website. Websites are our main uh, avenue of communication, so we hope that you'll do that. And then take a moment and encourage those who are presenting I tell them thank you for their labor and their work, their editing, and then making time to be here. We certainly appreciate them. In line with that, we're so thankful for Dr. Watts, our next presenter, as he has been our program coordinator, program chairman for several years, seven years, actually. And we're very thankful for him. He is your first touch with your presenting as you send him papers and he interacts with you and, and gets those ready for presentation. And we are thankful as a commission for the yeoman's job he has done so many years. We appreciate the fact he's been a pastor, excuse me, since 2011 of the Gracefield Baptist Church in Arnold, Mississippi. He's the moderator of the St. Louis District Association, assistant moderator of the Missouri State Association. He's a graduate from here from Welch College, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary with MDiv, finished his finished at Duke University Divinity School and finally received his doctorate, his PhD rather, at Concordia. He served on the commission since 2013. He is an accomplished writer. He is an accomplished student, administrator, communicator, excuse me, communicator, and he has written, edited, or contributed to three books. He is one of our uh, favorite speakers in the way he takes the complex and makes it accessible and we look forward to him presenting tonight as he talks to us and discusses, should pastors be obeyed? Make him feel welcome as he comes to present this evening. Before we dive in, I just want to make two contextual notes here. I'm aware, or I was thinking in recent days, I should say, about the fact that it is Pastor Appreciation Month. And I think that's kind of an interesting thing on, and to hold into your mind as you think about the reception of this paper, or for me to hold in mind as I think about it. The other th- dynamic, I think, for many of us in this room is that the, probably the most listened to podcast right now in the evangelical world is The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And a big theme in that podcast is, uh, a big focal, focal point in that is a particular leadership approach, a particular approach to church government. And so I think if you take 
this larger, these two larger points of context into consideration, you'll realize how relevant this is and really how relevant it would be even if those other two factors weren't the case at this present time. So with that in mind, uh, let's dive in. Few terms elicit stronger reaction than authority and submission. Words like obey and submit can land quite severely with an individual, depending on the specific trauma he may have observed or experienced. Regrettably, the abuse and misuse of power is regularly uncovered within educational, political, and religious institutions. For the last two decades, the Roman Catholic Church has been the ongoing object of intense scrutiny because of its handling of widespread clerical sexual abuse and misconduct. Some have felt that the cover-up has been nearly as damning as the transgressions themselves. Protestants are not immune to such scandals either, as exhibited a few years ago by the Houston Chronicle's reporting on the improprieties in many Baptist churches, including denominational leaders within the Southern Baptist Convention. While many powerful people have been toppled due to the abuse of authority throughout corporate America, elected office, and Hollywood, judgment begins at the household of faith. It probably appears to non-religious observers that religious people have more to answer for considering the high moral standards they are known for articulating. A complicating factor for church leaders in this current climate is the scriptural appeal to obey and submit to authorities. Being faithful to teach and preach the whole counsel of God means giving attention to passages that unsettle many whom the church seeks to reach. Even some believers probably wonder about the contemporary significance of such text. Fewer passages put the matter as starkly as Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Tucked into the closing chapter of one of the most closely studied New Testament documents is an overlooked command. Like other verses, this one joins or combines an ethical injunction and a direct appeal to authority. But the stark call for obedience and submission to authority for the good of the obedient and submissive makes it especially implausible to many modern listeners. How can authority be for the good of the obedient, especially when the ones obeyed are able to inflict so much harm, spiritual and otherwise? Naturally, this question occurs readily to modern listeners, given the abuses mentioned above. And to some, Jesus certainly looks like the poster boy for the modern maxim, question authority. He was a Messiah prone to defy conventional authority, who so passionately urged his disciples not to conceive of authority as the Gentiles did. Question authority seems a far more fitting mantra for disciples than obey your leaders. While Jesus' discussion of authority is certainly a worthy line of discussion, our focus here is on the pastoral and theological significance of Hebrews 13.17. This verse demonstrates a close connection between obedience to leaders and the spiritual flourishing of believers. However, what is the nature of that relationship? How might it be understood in times when religious authority is so deeply and widely questioned? Here we will attempt to demonstrate that obedience to church leaders, properly understood, is essential to the spiritual well-being of those under pastoral care. The context of Matthew, oh, excuse me, Hebrews 13 the theological nature of authority, and the reality of divine accountability for church leaders suggests that controversial truths, such as those found in Hebrews 13, 17, 
are integral to the formation of disciples and healthy churches. This paper will offer pastoral and theological observations about the manifestation of this principle in the church. When taken together, these observations will demonstrate that Hebrews 13.17 is oriented around shepherding and stewardship, not primarily position or power. In advancing this argument, we must begin by reconsidering authority itself. As so many misconceptions surround the term and concept, clearing the debris field of our modern minds is an important first step. Moreover, as the concept of authority overlays and undergirds so many biblical texts, bringing fresh clarity to this inescapable concept is essential. So let's start with demythologizing authority. Students of the 20th century are familiar with the rise of totalitarian governments across the world. Whether of the fascist or communist variety, authoritarian leaders were literally responsible for the redrawing of political boundaries as well as millions of freshly dug graves. This grim picture is often the backdrop against which people hear the term authority. After all, it is so closely linked with authoritarian. Accordingly, many people, Christians included, often balk at conceiving of authority as a spiritual or theological matter. Authority is merely another concession in a fallen world. Religious and irreligious people alike have lamented the decline of community, for example, but far fewer have lamented the decline of authority. A cynical perspective toward authority is further reinforced by ignorance of Scripture. Many Christians simply do not believe that authority belongs in the Christian lexicon. Of course, this belief is easily dispelled by a cursory reading of Scripture. Authority is regularly assumed, invoked, granted, delegated, and used. Moses is authorized to lead God's people out of Egyptian bondage. David is properly authorized to be Israel's king. The prophets are authorized to speak for Yahweh. Jesus constantly refers to the Father's authority. Christ grants authority to his apostles for ministry. In the Great Commission, he appeals to all authority in heaven and on earth which has been given him. Even as Jesus himself is so often said to be repudiating earthly authority, we find that his message was not so much opposed to the exercise of authority. Rather, it confronted the wrong understanding and use of such authority. One such illustration of authority is seen in the Apostle Paul's counsel to fathers concerning discipline. They are commanded, Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Paul clearly recognizes the possibility for excesses and problematic motivations in the exercise of parental authority. However, authority, is, authority to discipline is not denied. It is instituted with guidance. Similar forms of qualified but rightful uses of authority can be found throughout both Old and New Testaments. So a responsible pastoral theological engagement with Hebrews 13.17 and authority more generally rejects reductionist pictures of authority. The philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein's oft-cited remark about people being held captive by a certain picture of language applies here. We need better pictures of authority. We need to conceptualize authority not as brute ability, power, or institutional strength. Instead, we should envision it as a stewardship of responsibility. When we do, some of the visceral gut-level suspicion is allayed so we can move beyond distortions and work toward a provisional definition. So let's move beyond those distortions. In his book, Up With Authority, Victor Austin posits there are many forms of authority operating in the world. 
He specifically examines social authority, epistemic authority, political authority, and ecclesiastical authority. Yet the definition he offers encompasses all forms of authority. He states that authority is held by a person or persons who lead humans to a fuller exercise of their freedom to accomplish human tasks. Such an authority will customarily appeal to other authorities, including text. An authority is someone who is authorized, which is to say, an authority is also under authority. Conversely, to exercise authority is to be acknowledged as one who has authority, or had authority, which is to say, normally, an authority is one who is able to summon free obedience. Admittedly, this definition takes for granted some ideas which will only be examined later, but Austin posits several key components to authority that are coherent and theologically significant. First, authority can be thought of as a trust, deposit, or possession of an individual or group. This is probably how we usually think of authority, the right or ability to act in significant ways. Think of the manager who exercises his right to terminate an ineffective clerk. He acts on the stewardship or oversight with which he has been entrusted. Second, consider the fact that another authority has granted this manager's authority. While a Christian account would see that there is no earthly authority, which is not answerable to a higher authority, even a secular perspective recognizes that most earthly authorities are answerable to someone or something else, whether it is a supervisor, shareholders, a board, or another similar entity. Third, the grantor of authority may also serve a dual role. Not only may they be the one to whom other authorities are answerable, but their granted authority may be appealed to in order to justify the other person or group's exercise of authority. Think of our manager again. He may reference past actions of a former manager, perhaps now the business owner, to reinforce his decision. So other authorities not only may be those who grant authority in the initial sense, but they may reinforce or give credibility to the other authority's decision. A fourth dimension of Austin's definition, appropriate to our inquiry, is the fact that authorities can and should lead other human beings to a, quote, fuller exercise of their freedom to accomplish human tasks, unquote. We recognize the signs of the abuse of authority when a person lacking social or institutional power is hindered, humiliated, or harmed. These outward signs are usually seen in the context of a person being unable to flourish as they perform the task or functions they were intended to fulfill. As we will show later, pastors who lead well and are obeyed do not work at cross-purposes with the well-being of their congregants. The final aspect of this definition relates to the prior, a summons of free obedience, or a summons to free obedience. While this could be interpreted more in terms of the right of the authority to ask for obedience, I would argue that this should be understood as the ability for the individual to choose to yield to such authority. Being responsible to obey in a given situation also assumes the ability to choose to obey. In a fallen world, any rightly delegated authority, whether parents, judges, pastors, or the state, could ask something immoral of a person. Thus, the freedom to obey also implies and necessitates the freedom to disobey. So let's start to transition toward thinking about what's going on in Hebrews 13, 17. 
Having established a basic but substantial framework for our discussion of authority, we must test it against Scripture. Hebrews 13.17 may not be the most studied or discussed verse in Hebrews, but it deals directly with our subject. A commitment to biblical authority means textual and theological sensitivity and awareness. Hebrews does not exist in a canonical vacuum. It is a substantial contribution to our understanding of Christianity in the first century, and especially the spiritual struggles of our ancestors. Recognizing this forces us to take seriously its message about the superiority of the, old, of the new covenant over the old, the potential of apostasy, and the need for perseverance. So then we will look to the context and message of Hebrews 13:17 to discern the nature of pastoral authority, submission, and obedience, and to help answer the question, should pastors be obeyed? While this text and its context will be primary, some other general observations will be made with respect to related themes in other New Testament epistles. The thematic treatment of the subject will reinforce our assertion that Hebrews 13.17 supports the responsible stewardship of shepherding, not the oppressive power of the pastorate. The epistle to the Hebrews is permeated by illusion, quotation, symbol, and Old Testament type, exceeding any other New Testament document. The extent of Old Testament symbolism repurposed for Christological exposition is breathtaking. Accordingly, it would be understandable for readers to overlook the deeply pastoral concerns of this letter. It remains more fundamentally a word of exhortation than a theological tract or doctrinal treatise. We should hasten to clarify that doctrine serves a pastoral function, as does all New Testament teaching. The indicatives of the gospel provide the basis for the ethical imperatives of the Christian life. Even though much of the language of Hebrews begins not in gospel indicative, but in Old Testament illusion or imagery, the new covenant fulfillment is never far behind. This then provides a basis for the hortatory appeal of the letter throughout the epistle. Specifically, the enjoinder, let us, becomes an important refrain, critical to the perseverance of the Christian community. The community of believers had in some cases drifted, doubted, or grown dull to God's word. They were even warned about growing to despise the word, a state that if not remedied would lead to an ultimate defiance of and denial of God's word. Wavering believers are admonished to persevere. While commentators and theologians have debated the rhetorical function and theological referent of these warnings, none deny the pervasiveness of the theme of spiritual warning. However, presumably not every individual believer was at the same place of spiritual concern. Though some New Testament churches were generally or typically characterized, whether the divisiveness of Corinth or the doctrinal fidelity of Ephesus, it is reasonable to assume that spiritual maturity was always uneven across congregations then as it is now. For the Apostle Paul, just as, a side, as, as an example, to urge those who are spiritual in Galatia to engage in spiritual restoration presupposes this. So then it is safe to assume that both wayward and stable believers alike were commanded in Hebrews 13.17 to obey and submit to their leaders. With this larger context in view, we are now prepared to consider the meaning of the commands in 13.17, as well as the rest of the verse which provides the rationale for the commands. The verbs translated as obey and submit are paramount to appreciating the force of this text. Obey here can mean to give way to or yield to admonition. But while we typically assume it signals strict conformity or unquestionable compliance, it can also convey the idea of persuasion or the placing of confidence in another. 
Indeed, the distinct form of the verb is better rendered as to be persuaded. Some commentators, such as Outlaw, distinguish between the two verbs by saying obey pertains to responses when we agree and submit covers those occasions in which we may disagree or their instructions may initially appear harsh. While I am not convinced the distinction is entirely obvious, he is right to point out that the stronger word for obedience, in the conventional sense, is used elsewhere with respect to obeying God. Spiritual leaders help inspire this type of obedience or following when it is born out of persuasion, which is the result of faithfully teaching the word. The stronger term to submit, on the other hand, quote, may indicate a strained relationship between the leadership and some members of the Christian community, unquote. It does possess more semantic force. It only appears here in the New Testament and means to submit to one's authority. While some rift is quite possible given the spiritual struggles of the community, of their community, we can only speculate. Who are the leaders of Hebrews 13, 17? While the word used here is a form of a verb that can refer to various forms of leadership, the references to speaking the word and overseeing the flock point to the role of an elder. It does not refer to some generic leaders, but specifically those leaders who provide the instruction and sound teaching that elders are charged with providing. That these leaders are to be understood as pastor teachers is justified not simply because the term for leading doesn't refer to a separate office, but also by the rest of the verse. These leaders watch out for the souls of those obeying and submitting, and will have to give an account for them. This squares with the New Testament portrait of pastorate. They are overseers or bishops. These elders, also called shepherds, are told that if they serve well, they will be rewarded when the chief shepherd appears. The connection between oversight and accountability later in Hebrews 13 and 1 Peter, especially parallel 13:17, confirming our view that those leading here are pastors to whom obedience and submission are due. It also seems that if the leadership if the leadership were the primary if leadership were the primary problem and not obedience, that would have been identified. After all, the apostles don't mind speaking of the detailed standards for pastors and teachers. However, the author does not let the moment pass without reminding them of their accountability to God, of which more will be said below. Some commentators also note the thematic connection between 13.7 and 13.17. A surface reading does evoke the idea of listening to leaders. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. The main difference between the two commands might be the historical location of the leaders, Outlaw, for example, says 13.7 refers to church leaders who have already died. This would fit the flow of thought preceding this in chapter 11. Here the example and words of faithful leaders stand as guideposts to help orient believers to the superiority of Christ in the face of their trials over and against the inferior ways of the past. Verse 17, on the other hand, is focused on current leaders. The biblical authors were well aware of the possibility of excesses in the exercise of any form of authority. This is why we see so many qualifications connected to the exercise of spiritual authority, whether in the home or the church. Fathers, for example, must not provoke their children to wrath as they rear them. Whatever nurture and admonition they provide must be done in the Lord. And as mentioned above, the apostles no doubt recalled the warnings of their teacher, Jesus who cautioned them about lording authority over people as the Gentiles did. But what of pastors? How can they be obeyed and submitted to without it becoming an opportunity for evil? 
First, divine accountability provides a powerful check on the abuse of pastoral authority in the church. We will consider this further below. Second, as we also see below, a plurality of elders and a healthy understanding of congregationalism and church membership also provides accountability. But other biblical texts also provide spiritual checks on any elder or pastor who may abuse or misuse the authority granted him in his teaching, leadership, or shepherding. 1 Peter 5 makes clear that there is no place for excess or abuse in the exercise of pastoral authority. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Interestingly, the language of responsibility and oversight is linked again to a caution about the inappropriate use of one's pastoral position. On the surface, it might seem that the Petrine audience was especially prone to poor pastoral leadership. However, it isn't just Hebrews 13, 17 and 1 Peter 5 which associate accountability and qualification about pastoral leadership. When we consider the pastoral epistles, we also see much more attention given to the character and integrity of overseers rather than the actual task of overseeing. This pattern doesn't diminish one's competence for the ministry, for elsewhere the ability of pastors in its various facets is evident, whether teaching sound doctrine or admonishing the wayward. For example, pastors must teach with all patience. Notice that there is a skill that must be exercised in a specific manner and presumably from a certain posture of heart. We might then say that pastors aren't best known as authorities. Rather, it is better to say that they are authorized by virtue of God's gifting and calling through the congregation to teach, lead, and shepherd. The appropriate response of the faithful is to be persuaded by this ministry and in so doing to submit themselves. To grieve the shepherd is of no benefit to the sheep. Shepherds who have the chief shepherds reappearing in view are not infallible, but they are accountable. Therefore, they and the flock are to remember that pastor's authority is derivative of God's gifting and obedience, uh, excuse me, derivative of God's gifting and the congregation's calling. This leads naturally into some further theological reflection on obedience and submission to pastoral authority. We will limit our reflection to two main ideas. The theological locus of authority as a key to its true significance and the final accountability of pastors. Victor Alston invites us to participate in a thought experiment. He asks us to envision creation, fall, and redemption as points along a theological continuum. Now, where should authority be located? Many would hasten to locate it somewhere between the fall and redemption. After all, the most glaring form of authority in most people's lives is the state. As the state wields the sword, law, order, and justice are maintained. Certainly law enforcement would not be necessary in a world unspoiled by sin. Yet Austin challenges this narrow conception of authority. He argues that it is, quote, built into what it means to be human, and we will never escape from needing it for our flourishing, unquote. If authority is, in fact, a performative concept in which people do what they were made to do or authorized to do, then this would not, this would, uh, then would this not reach across the entire continuum of creation, fall, and redemption? Adam and Eve, as Andy Crouch explains, exercise true power or authority, and just a note, uh, 
those terms, some people use them interchangeably, some make a distinction. Uh, I'm not going to wade into that debate for purposes of this paper. I'm just giving the quote as he gave it, okay? So Crouch explains that Adam and Eve exercised true power or authority by having dominion over the created order. If human stewardship over creation continues, even in a sinful world, then legitimate authority is being wielded even then. What about in the future? Will there be authority in the life to come? If humans were authorized to cultivate and steward God's world before the fall, and if they remained under some obligation as stewards now, why would that stewardship entirely cease in the future? Our stewardship of authority, as Austin would have us think of it, is much more like a symphony orchestra than a rigid hierarchy of increasingly powerful people. A conductor exercises authority over the various instrumentalists by giving direction to the interpretation of particular pieces of music. Each instrumentalist plays his part using his or her own instrument, reading the music according to their own skill or ability. Yet, quote, the more complex the musical ensemble, the more the need for authority, unquote. Austin explains, quote, it is the complexities of social organization with their attendant localizations and focusing of authority that make possible large-scale coordinated actions of human creativity, unquote. At this point, we should observe the obvious parallel this has to local church leadership. Within the body, there are many members with numerous gifts. Even if we could imagine an environment where a specific church was entirely sinless, and just go ahead and let your imagination run wild. Just imagine the sinless church that you could serve. Even if such a church existed, it would still need some form of authority to direct the activities of the body, as a conductor might do so for an orchestra. If it is then true that authority is pertinent to all of life, ministry included, and it is for the purpose of human flourishing, authority could be seen theologically as, quote, an aspect of God's providence for the human race, unquote. This is one of the ways by which his authority is granted to humans to accomplish purposes, earthly and divine. Some authors have even pointed out that power, another variation on our theme, is itself a gift. When properly used, it blesses. Real authority augments the human. Small wonder that the Latin root of authority is augure, meaning to cause to increase or grow. This insight adds a degree of dimension to our understanding of Hebrews 13, 17. Those pastors who oversee obedient and submissive members by teaching, leading, and shepherding well cause them to flourish. This brings joy to the shepherd and delight to the sheep. As pastors provide doctrinal direction and oversight, they are watching over the lives of the flock. As Hammett explains, this word has the, has the, quote, idea of constant wakefulness or unceasing vigilance. This care would be expressed concretely in acts like pastoral visitation, personal counseling, and ministry in times of sickness and grief, unquote. This only makes sense given that the leaders are watching out for people's souls. Piccarelli explains, quote, in context here, soul appears to refer to the person as a whole, but with some focus on the person as a spiritual being whose eternal welfare is at stake, unquote. Therefore, elders must be spiritually alert or wide awake. Why? Because they will give an account. Yet the ministry of the elders is hindered and diminished by having to carry out their ministry of leadership, instruction, and oversight with the kind of stresses that accompany unyielding members. 
This ultimately undoes the entire body since the pastor is hindered and thus his ministry of leadership is hindered. Such a conscientiousness, uh, excuse me, such a conscientious approach to the flock fits the care implied by a group neto. The theological entailments of authority cannot terminate in us speaking of the affirmations that surround appropriate pastoral authority. We must also linger on the warning embedded in Hebrews 13, 17. Peter's reminder that judgment begins at the household of faith is more than a reminder to flee hypocrisy. It is a call to self-examination, to take caution, and to give heed to one's life and doctrine. Only in so doing can pastors be said to take seriously the reminder that they will give an account. Certainly the New Testament has much to say about divine judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, and the watchful eye of the just judge of heaven. These themes coalesce to form a robust basis for repentance and godly living in the present and hope for the future. But when coupled with James 3.1, one remembers that professional talkers have a greater reason for humility, caution, and care in their work than any other servant in the local church. Divine accountability functions as a check on the worst impulses of earthly leaders. When faithful congregations meditate on this doctrine, it puts the church's leaders on notice. Moreover, when the policies and practices of a local church take seriously the preaching of the church, they don't assume members nor leaders are angels, but sinners saved by grace. Churches that take divine accountability and judgment seriously, then, do not wait until the worst has happened to pursue measures that protect clergy, congregation, and community. There is, one could easily say, a theology of judgment and accountability implicit in the policies of the church. Please reflect on that. The lack of such policies presupposes far too little about the depth of depravity in people and the vulnerability of people, especially children. The lack of enforcement of well-written policies shows that the love which the church proclaims is mere ornament. While the reminder of divine accountability is certainly vertical in its ultimate orientation, its implications must be fleshed out horizontally. For only then will we be able to say that Hebrews 13, 17 is not only pastorally expedient, but theologically serious. Some of the pastoral and practical considerations of this substantial verse have already been mentioned, or at least implied. But in our final section, we will seek to be more explicit in thinking through its import for today's church. In view of the arguments we developed, we might say that pastoral authority is the capacity for and exercise of spiritual responsibility toward the people of God for His purposes in their lives. Construed this way, we see that authority is not an end unto itself. Instead, it is oriented toward the glory of God and the good of man. God's glory and man's good aren't unrelated either. For image bearers, there is nothing more glorious than for a believer to recover something of his humanity through Christ and in the course of our service to his church. This recovery effort is something that faithful pastors must oversee. Scripture gives examples of the pastoral mindset of those preoccupied with this achievement, not any other form of earthly accolade. This is Paul's heartbeat when he called the Philippians his joy and crown, or when John said, I have no greater joy than to hear of my children walking in truth. When the Lord of Heaven isn't dependent, or excuse me, while the Lord of Heaven isn't dependent on the groans of pastors to figure out what is going on with the sheep, the prayers, intercessions, efforts, and anxieties of this past, of the pastor should be seen as reflecting, to some degree, the spiritual progress and obedient spirits of his people. Any obedience or submission that is rendered to pastors must keep this larger holy aim ever in view: the maturity of the saints. 
Congregational submission is never an end, only a means to glorification of God and the fulfillment of the church's mission, which entails the discipleship of all people into Christ's likeness. This discipleship means flourishing. We might even say shalom. Shalom is, after all, not merely the right ordering of things, but it is a reality personally enjoyed by those in union with Christ. True shalom comes through Him, and faithful shepherds direct people to Him. Pastors spend a lot of time thinking about discipleship strategies, but it's tempting to avoid meditating quite as long on their own personal discipleship within the flock. And since our conduct is simply the overflow of our character, let's consider a few ways that pastors can reorient their own self-concept that will help them see their own efforts as rooted in their stewardship as servants, not their positions as pastors. Pastors are so in the habit of presenting others to the congregation for membership that it is likely easy to forget their own identity as members of the body. Yet due partly to the hiring practices of many churches, this is seldom considered. Many pastors do not serve churches they were first united with in membership. How might it be different then for pastors to be formally presented to their congregations for membership, at least in conjunction with their actual hiring? While this would, be largely, while this would largely have symbolic value, symbols matter. Christians of all people understand this. Pastors function by, as pastors by virtue of their calling by the congregation who has recognized the giftedness and character of the individual. Pastors must recognize that the proper order of their roles is believer, member, then pastor. Admittedly, this is easily obscured by contemporary thought and practice concerning the pastorate. Lloyd Rediger's observation is disconcerting in this respect. The clergy role is sui generis, for it is the only profession that wraps personal identity, professional identity, and religious identity all in the same package. If pastors are members too, then their own spiritual progress is not primarily a function of maintaining employment, but of their own spiritual maturity and building up the body as they grow in Christ's likeness. Too often an inflated view of self-importance is the basis for pastors' pursuit of holiness. This isn't hard to imagine. As one megachurch pastor put it, the local church is the hope of the world and its future rests primarily in the hands of its leaders. Primarily? With assertions like this, no wonder so many are crushed and leave the ministry. Spiritual realism is needed in this discussion. To be sure, the pastorals repeatedly stress the congruity between right teaching and right behavior by the elders and deacons. And sound leadership is essential to a healthy church. But true spirituality is rooted in the simple foundation of identity in Christ, not in ordination. Indeed, pastors get in trouble when they forget that a pastor is not only a pastor, but also a person. Over the last two decades, there has been much discussion in Baptist circles about the need for plural leadership. Much of this discussion has, spurred, has been spurred from within the Southern Baptist Convention and particularly parachurch ministries like Nine Marks. While some of these groups conceptualize this leadership structure slightly differently, there is nothing within Free Will Baptist polity that would prohibit Free Will Baptists from developing a much more intentional effort to develop plural leadership. Hammett helpfully reminds us that the New Testament uses the terms elder, overseer, and pastor interchangeably, as so did, and so did Baptists for much of their history. Congregations can be taught this truth as well as the New Testament pattern of plural eldership in the earliest churches, while at the same time having a pastor who may well be tasked with the primary oversight responsibilities. Additionally, having others in staff roles which are not always asymmetrical to a lead pastor creates a greater likelihood that poor shepherding, shepherding will not go overlooked. 
Better instruction on the ministry of deacon and the proper constraints of church boards would also ensure that the biblical pattern and congregational wellness is always in view. Forming these new identity markers will be challenging, yet they can provide a healthy foundation for a life of responsible stewardship. In closing, I'll mention two test cases for how obedience and submission to such stewards might look. First for laity and second for pastors. Think about transitions for a second. Stanley Outlaw makes a powerful observation in relating Hebrews 13.7 to 13.17. He says that in verse 7, the writer referred to past leaders, those who originally delivered God's word to them and who had apparently died. They are to remember them and follow the courageous example of their faith. Now, new spiritual leaders have taken their place. When we have experienced good leaders in the church, we often feel that no one can possibly take their place, but that is not true. We must never refuse the leadership of a new pastor or other church leaders because of an emotional attachment to the past. The church must continue. Elderly and retired leaders will go to their reward, but Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. These words are sobering, but ever so appropriate for congregations who won't often view transitions as inevitable and potentially positive, but as frightening and frustrating. But Outlaw's admonitions are practical and timely given the large-scale transition for baby boomer pastors to millennial and Generation Z pastors, or generations. To be frank, more and more churches will likely transition from older pastors who serve for decades to younger pastors who are the age of the, the departing pastor's grandson. This raises the stakes for all parties involved. The New Testament gives specific admonitions to younger leaders such as, let no man despise your youth. And do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Yet is it possible that Hebrews 13.17 offers crucial guidance for the congregation led by such young men? Transitions will require mutual understanding, humility, and submission. And then let's think about preaching. Authority, or the perceived lack thereof, also can profoundly shape preaching and teaching. This issue was famously addressed in Fred Craddock's widely discussed book, As One Without Authority. He contends that how one preaches is to a large extent what one preaches. This leads him to make the substantial argument that no longer can preachers depend upon a deductive form of preaching. In an age where religious authority is so contested, more indirect, less heavy-handed, and assertive approaches to preaching must be adopted. His proposal for an inductive approach places more responsibility on the listener to participate in and to complete the message. I don't intend to litigate Craddock's argument here fully, especially since its problems have already been considered elsewhere. But including it here reminds us that homileticians have been grappling with the way religious and pastoral authority may influence the practice of preaching. Pastors must carefully consider how their approaches to handling text, including ones like 1317, are heard through the matrix of contemporary experiences in the life of their congregants. The preaching of any text, for that matter, is heard against that backdrop. Pastors have little to no control over that. They do, however, have the capacity to model forth a life of holiness that shows itself in submission to the same passages being proclaimed week after week. So in conclusion, responsible pastoral authority in the pulpit derives its authority from the Lord who inspired the scriptures. Richard John Newhouse puts it well, Our own competence and success are not, then, proof of our authority, nor does our proven incompetence withdraw the warrant from what we so inadequately try to do and be. But that authority is much more effective when it emanates from a life profoundly shaped by those scriptures. 
No doubt serving well has its horizontal benefits and acknowledgments. Yet this hints at the subtle but important moral distinction between doing what we do in order to be seen, which Jesus warned about, versus doing what we do mindful of the fact that we will be seen. Now think about that. Make no mistake, spiritual benefit does accrue to those who lead well. Believers' submissiveness to the leaders will result in the leaders being able to carry out their ministry with joy. The connection between leadership and thriving is unmistakable. Appreciating the facets and nuances of this connection require that the church teach and model godly spiritual authority, even when confidence in religious institutions is waning. While authority will remain a contested subject, its existence and influence are unavoidable. Therefore, all those authorized to live before God must grapple with its role in the relationship between shepherds and the flock. Thank you, and I welcome your questions. Well, I would have a lot of questions about that. I mean, you've given a lot of information in your question, but there would be a lot of questions that I would want to have. I mean, assuming, let's say, I was the one considering that opportunity, um, I, I, I don't think we ask enough questions, and I mean that both ways. So let's say it's a search committee, just for lack of a better term. They tend to not ask enough questions and often not the right questions, and the people being interviewed, sometimes they're hard up for a job or they kind of think they already have a sense. They've got a plan that worked elsewhere, so they just bring their plan to the new location. And I think we need to sometimes just pump the brakes at that part of the process. And I think we also need to recognize that even if you're going into, let's say, a healthier situation where there's not some of those struggles, there's always this distinction in many people's minds between sort of that practical moral authority that comes with time and care and love and character being fleshed out 
versus kind of how the church understands the formal authority of the pastor. Meaning when I ask the question, who will make the decisions about this, this, or this, and then they answer it. Or let's say you have a committee of 10 people and three people answer it one way, and three people answer it another way, and three people answer it another way, and then the other person in the corner is like, you know. Um, I think that that's where that transparency would be a lot more helpful and it would lead to a lot less heartache. Recognizing too though, I, and I think this is always part of the answer, I think people just need to be prepared to stay longer. I mean, we just need to operate off the assumption in every situation that whether this seems like a healthy situation or not, we need to be prepared to go and really be among people indefinitely. And uh, I think that once people determine, oh, this person's gonna hang around, you know, they really wanna know um, they're really curious. It's like a missionary coming in and just embrace, you know, um, those are just some initial general considerations that I think would apply to a lot of questions. By the way, and I don't know how the Lord does this, sometimes I do think the Lord keeps us a little ignorant of certain things because if we knew, we just wouldn't go many times. I'm just, I'm just so persuaded of that. Now, that's a different conversation, but anyway. This is a follow-up question. If you were going into a new church, what would, what would be the, what would you you know, some of that would certainly be shaped by the sense that I got about the history of the church, how long the congregation has existed, has there been recent conflict and all. I think there are certain books of the Bible that are just always helpful to begin with. I think Ephesians is always a great book to start preaching from because you've got a great exposition of the gospel, family, the church. It's a wonderful epistle that brings those together. Let's start off with a really high view of God and the gospel and then start thinking about how that works out in life change. Um, obviously, you could preach other things and you'd be well-founded on that uh, to pursue that. Um, but yeah, and also you're laying down a paradigm for the fact that the scriptures are going to be authoritative in what we're doing going forward, regardless of what the history of the church has been. So those are lots more thoughts, though, on those questions, and be happy to talk to you more at length. Yeah. Other questions? We've got about four minutes. What, what time does this session end? Okay. Other questions or comments? Yeah, Ben. Hear how do you think um, churches ought to transition to younger pastors? Um, just as that whole um, you know very precedent where submission to leaders mm -hmm. plays into you know a fifty-year-old. You know, I was twenty-six when I started pastoring. So mm -hmm. when, I was, when I started, you know, being the guy. Yeah. So you know, how would how would you like if, if someone Reached out to you and said, "Hey, we're considering having this 23-year-old straight out of college. How would you advise the church to, you know, in the sense of commit to his authority?" Are you thinking about like a search committee, particularly, or just any? Yeah. Well, one of the errors that I think churches frequently make is they assume that the congregation's older. If they just hire a younger pastor, the church will get younger, and that's naive and problematic in a lot of ways and it puts an unhealthy burden on the incoming pastor so I'd really want to encourage that search committee you communicate regularly with the broader congregation about the fact that even if we feel the Lord's will you know gonna bring bring to us someone who might be at a very different place in life than our previous pastor um, we're focused on who this person is and not just 
what they might can do just because of the amount of gray hair or the absence of gray hair on their head, you know. So that's one thing I'd really want to communicate. I would communicate to a person getting ready to go into that situation. I think it's very important that you recognize that preaching is actually, as hard as good preaching is, that probably isn't going to be your biggest challenge in year one. It's just not. And so put in the time, but you're going to have to get your nose out of the books a little bit and actually get out among people and get to know them. You're establishing first impressions with people. You're communicating your you are there to be a shepherd and you need to smell like the sheep, you know, as some some person once said. So that's one thing I would say. I would also, again, I would have a number of questions for that committee about what was the nature of the transition. So did you have a pastor who retired? Uh, was it a, you know, was it a, or was the departure, what was the nature of the, de- the departure? Because many times churches are trying to remedy in the new hire something that was a failure in the previous situation and again that's often a problematic basis for you know a problematic set of lens to put on by which to view this new person so those are some initial considerations I have a lot more but I don't want to talk for an hour but um, it, it's 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 increased it used to be the case well I say it used to be the case who am I to say that it seemed like it used to be the case that if you came right out of school especially if you were single you just weren't going to get hired as a lead pastor it just wasn't going to happen uh, that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. <laughs> You're going to have more 24-year-old lead pastors, and they're often going to be following. And so that's going to create special challenges for the congregations and these incoming pastors. There's a lot more preparation we need to be doing with committees and individuals going into those situations. I mean, it's just hard to have a lot of experience when you're 23. It's just, it's just really hard. Another question or comment? Yeah, Jeremy. Talk about pastors as co-pastors, and you mentioned the uh, plurality of elders that is kind of taking place in the SBC, and that this is not a uh, frugal Baptist polity that is not necessarily opposed to this. How does that look with ordination? Because in Southern Baptist, or at least, or in these Bible churches that do promote uh, mm-hmm. plurality of elders. They don't seem to be as concerned about their, you know, we'll just call them ruling elders. I know they don't, some, some of them don't, don't say that. But they're not, Presbyterians are consistent on this, but Baptists don't seem to be mm-hmm. when it comes to their elders. Uh, Presbyterians ordain their ruling and their teaching elders. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at least in the SBC, it doesn't seem to be that they're very concerned about ordination except for the main preacher or the people who are the paid pastors, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we understand this in, with ordination? Uh, because typically when somebody gets ordained for a pat, they look at them differently than just saying that's a person's a lay preacher. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, uh, and, and what, does this, what does this mean? Or, or how does that look? That's a broad Okay. Question. Well, first, uh, first thought is we shouldn't be ordaining people to be pastors who aren't called to be pastors. I know that seems like kind of like common sense, but maybe not so common. So we shouldn't be doing that. Number two, I reject, the, and I'm sure you do too, the distinction between a ruling elder and a teaching elder. Mm-hmm. I just don't think that's exegetically tenable. And 
I don't think it's practically desirable either, but that's another question. Um, and then the other thing I would say, and we already have this, uh, and I don't mean to upset anybody, I know we're coming from lots of different states, I think we already have a problem with sometimes churches doing an end run around the local association and their examination processes, okay? And it seems like, what I, this is what I thought you were going with that question is, say you have your senior pastor who holds credentials through the local association and was examined by some uh, uh, ordination council or whatever you call it where you're from. Um, and then when you have these sort of auxiliary staff roles in which the person's being recognized as an elder, I'm, I'm, if you're going to call them an elder or call them a pastor, treat them that way, I would say they need to go through the same process that anybody. It, it doesn't matter if they're primarily responsible, to me, it doesn't matter if they're primarily responsible for students or administration, but if you're going to call them pastor, you know, they need to, even if they're primarily doing one or two things, they need to fulfill the New Testament vision of the pastor. And from a free will Baptist standpoint, I think our historic practice of examination through the local association is an important complement to that whole picture. So I tried to answer that really quickly, but I have lots of thoughts on that. So would you say that's a, that's a distinction we're holding from Southern Baptists then? Because they don't seem to... I mean, I mean, they will not... Again, like I said, the Presbyterians are more straightforward about what they mean on this, but it seems like Baptists that hold to the plurality of elders don't... They don't... They want to say all pastors, shepherds, teachers are elders... It's all the same office, but they don't seem to treat it that way. And uh, you know, and so uh, by by the standards that they require for a senior pastor, as opposed to whoever else is considered an elder or a pastor. Yeah. Um, and so that's all I'm saying. I think I think I, I agree more with what you're saying. I'm just saying. It seems to be different how other movements are doing it. If we're going to say, if you're an elder, you need to be ordained. You need to go through the rigors of ordination and whatever that requires. Mm -hmm. Then yeah. I think our Free Will Baptist polity or ecclesiology distinguishes that. It's a little different nuance than maybe the traditional Southern Baptist. Oh, yeah. Or on that, because they would say, no, you don't. Yeah, well, it might be better, and it might be better to say Southern Baptist ecclesiologies might be a better thing to say. And to the Presbyterian point, I mean, I love my Presbyterian friends. I've got a lot of them, but I'm just not going to go to them for church government stuff because on the one hand, they're going to talk about ruling elders and teaching elders, and then they're going to levy a critique against all Baptist churches that have some kind of board. But then it's like, well, what's this session thing that you've got over here? Tell me about that, you know. So... Um, so, yeah, no, I, I think we need to not necessarily let, I mean, the Southern Baptists have produced some good resources on this, but it needs, these things need to be read very carefully because there are, I think you're right, Jeremy. And my, and my, my other issue is, like, a lot of times the people who are considered, they'll, you know, they'll call themselves pastors, they're lay elders or whatever. Mm -hmm. But they leave that church and then they're not pursuing ministry anywhere else. Yeah. Or oh, yeah. they step down from their eldership in the, in the church, and now they're not pastoring. Well, if God has called you to pastor, I think there's a sense of calling to this that, you know, as well. And if God has called you to pastor, uh, to do that, sorry, your paper was about authority, and not, and I probably got off a little bit. So.
Well, it, it obviously intersects with these questions of church government. So, no, that's, that's good. That's helpful. So, thanks, guys, for your comments and questions. Just so helpful. Again, uh, many of you are asking about uh, leadership, influence, and, uh, and authority. You talked about a formal authority, moral authority. And, uh, and so I know he'll be available for questions or be glad to meet you for coffee perhaps in the morning if he can help you. Some of the things along those lines, uh, Dr. Moody's in attendance with us tonight. You can speak to him, part of uh, some of the national office initiatives is trying to help with coaching so that those transitions are not so abrupt and awkward and cyclical in the sense of bouncing. And again, we, some of us with a little bit of gray hair have seen way too many 22, 23, 24-year-olds get mangled in their first attempt out or second attempt out in, in and are almost uh, chagrined at the thought of more ministry. And so, so the idea of coaching and support and, and all those things is just so very needed right now in accordance with what the Bible says that the pastor is to be doing in his role in accountability and authority. So if you're not familiar with that, I, I, I suggest, we would suggest rather, perhaps you see him and, and uh, maybe get some help and some some uh, wisdom there, or at least uh, some direction, and so we appreciate that. We'll reconvene tomorrow morning. We'll begin at 9, so uh, those of us, uh, those of you who want to be here a little early, and for all the tithers, we'll have some refreshments. And uh, so, sorry, tough crowd. And uh, that was what I saw some of you say. What's the first thing you preach on when you come to church? I saw, I saw six of you tithing. And uh, so... Uh, so all of you, all of you 20 percenters will have fresh coffee and uh, those kind of things in the morning. We appreciate that. Make sure that you fellowship, greet one another. And we are indeed so thankful again, so appreciative of everyone that is here this evening. And let's be dismissed in a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for tonight. Thank you for these, Lord, who labored and studied and edited and gave of themselves, Lord, to put uh, thought and research to paper and then to present it in such a way uh, that uh, made it accessible to us. So thank you. Thank you for what these in front of me or do in private to walk with you, to study, to labor, to keep their skills sharp, to, to learn to discern what is good and helpful and what is not. And then to, na to navigate not only our culture, but the, the cacophony that so often is Christendom and, and all the different things and, that are out there. So give us wisdom. Give us boldness. Help us to continue to be people of the book. And may we speak, Lord, uh, out of our great study and depth and then out of the great passion for you and your glory. So thank you. Help us to continue to point a lost world to a risen Savior. Thank you. Help us to have a great night and a and Lord, a profitable day tomorrow. Thank you. We ask in your son's name and amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.